0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order, additional term supply.
1: Hello! Welcome to the latest edition of Snark Monkey. I am Larry Morgan. Today I'll be talking with uh, radio, television, film personality, and author Richard Blade. If you grew up with K Rock in Los Angeles, or you listen to Sirius XM, or you've Ever watched television and seen interviews with practically any artist in the 80s? You probably know Richard. He's written a book. It's really good World in My Eyes. We talk a little about his background, how he got to LA, and his favorite movies. Enjoy. <laughs> This is a new thing, Richard. You're my first snark monkey experiment. I'm a movie nut. I'm a I'm a crazy movie person. Cool. Um, and I realized one of the things that I think. A lot of us live our lives through the prism of what we consider to be our most our favorite movies or the ones that have had the biggest impact on us. Um, I, and I asked you a second ago to write down your five favorite movies. I'm going to go in the middle of the pack, and I don't care if you did it in order or whatever, but just what was number three on the list?
0: Number three, I can remember because I was uh, actually stuck with the title for a second. And so I wrote Bruce Willis, and, uh, 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 and, but I remember what it is. Number three was Unbreakable.
1: Oh, the uh, M. Night Shyamalan Yeah, movie.
0: which is unusual, because I don't like M. Night Shyamalan. I think he's only done two good movies. Yeah, and, Sense and, six and Unbreakable. unbreakable. And but why Unbreakable? Because I think it was brilliantly paced. I thought it was... Uh, very, very unexpected what happened. And I love the fact it was a superhero movie about someone who didn't want to be a superhero. He wanted a regular life and he actually spent his whole life denying he had any abilities because he thought it would drive his family away. And I
1: love that. It's interesting, too. It was, I mean, well before this just glut of superhero movies. But yeah, Unbreakable really kind of delved into that every man superhero who didn't want to be a superhero mythos that Marvel kind of was doing. He was ahead of the game there. Yeah. And I love the fact that his powers
0: weren't that great. He was just a little bit stronger and a little more perceptive than most people.
1: Right. Um, interesting. All right. I You know, normally, I, I thought what I was going to do is ask people what their five favorite movies were and then I would tell them why they're wrong. But that's, <laughs> actually, I really like that one. Uh, so, World in My Eyes is the book that just came out right. uh, a little bit ago. Um, getting a great response and you're, you've been talking about it a lot. And I think that People who know you or know of you because you've been on the radio in Los Angeles for such a long time. Uh, Sirius XM, you've been a presence for how long now? Since late 2003. Yeah. Crazy. And uh, also just you've hosted so many shows and you've been on television and that sort of thing. But I I just don't know that people recognize how immersed in the business you've been until you wrote this book. And and everybody's going, oh, he knows everything. Everybody. I mean, not just because you've been around the business, but you've become friendly with so many of these people who made great music, especially during the 80s. I mean, that seems to be that period that... You are still talking about it, you're still very immersed mm-hmm. in and you are still very friendly with a lot of these people. Yeah, it's amazing what happens if you don't screw people over, you know, yeah, if you're not a
0: jerk. Exactly. <laughs> and I so remember I, that I've been really fortunate to uh, have friendships and relationships with a lot of these people uh, that continue to this day. And it was one of those things I never thought. I would have, because I am a fanboy as well. So I have a lot of photographs. That's why there's so many pictures in the book as well, because I like to get pictures of me with these celebrities. But as time goes by, the camera gets out of the way, and then you start talking about, well, what did you get when you went shopping today? And you suddenly realize you're not talking about music, you're not talking about their career or what you want out of them. You're just suddenly having a regular conversation. And, I mean, I was over at John Taylor's, if, if you want to name drop from Duran Duran about uh, two weeks ago. And we were going to be DJing a party together for a mutual friend of ours. Oh, wow. Which was great. I mean, as soon as I introduced him, every woman in the room was like... <gasps> John Taylor. He does get that reaction still, doesn't he? But we ended up talking politics for about 40 minutes. And I mean, that was kind of a surreal moment to be sitting there with John from Duran Duran as long as I've known him, but to be talking about what's happening today in the world of politics.
1: I think uh, as many people as I've interviewed, too, it's interesting that you see walls break down when you start to talk to them like human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been part of what has been so great to listen to you talking to artists as i have over the years is that you're not asking the typical questions you are a fan but you're also breaking down that barrier of oh yeah you're not a big star you actually have to live life day to day like everybody else and that really endears you to them because oh I can reveal something to him and I feel safe. Maybe it's about feeling yeah. safe, right? Yeah, because
0: I, I like to know what they do on a Monday. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all know they on Friday and Saturday, they're going to be rocking a stadium somewhere or playing in a club or getting onto a plane. But what do they do on Monday when they wake up? That's what I like to find out and find out how their life is uh, when they're not being Simon Lebon from Duran Duran, right. when they're not Dave Garn from Depeche Mode. How do they function? You know, do they always have to be on? Uh, or are they just regular human beings i joke with my wife sometimes um if i have a like a really busy schedule like next week i'm going to be working Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday doing gigs so throughout the week monday tuesday wednesday i'll be kicking back in my pjs and we'll be watching stuff on netflix and amazon and then jokingly on thursday i'm like okay i gotta go into the bat cave and put the uh, bat suit on and become richard blade and that's what i want to know if the artists are the same way and they are you know because unless they're so full of themselves that they have to be that celebrity 24 hours a day most of the times they just want to kick back and just have a regular life like everyone else.
1: You've probably encountered that, too, where somebody felt like they were much... Have you ever... I don't want you to have to name those names unless you really want to, um, but have you ever talked to somebody who you came away going, wow, they are so full of themselves, and then encountered them later and seen that they had kind of dropped that facade, had gotten over that?
0: Yeah, a few times I have. I always allow, in my brain, everyone to have one bad day so if i go into an interview and the person's not responding well uh or they're giving me attitude then i'm thinking okay they had an argument with their wife they were late for the plane whatever it is it's a bad day everyone has a bad day Mm -hmm. but if the second interview comes around five months later when they're back in town on the road and they've got the same attitude that's when i'm like done yeah not interested at this point you know <laughs> let's make it a short one
1: i have a, a very uh, you and i both actually worked at the same radio station for a short time that's how uh i realized i still have your number in my phone hey. that's nice uh we worked at uh, the uh, uh we worked at star 98.7 not called that anymore in right. los angeles and for a while i did mornings there and one morning uh jewel who was new on the scene uh, came downstairs to do some live music with us and an interview with me. um, And she was not happy because she had just visited our friends, Kevin and Bean, Uh and they had not been particularly nice to her for some reason. And that was a real, and for about 45 minutes, I was like, I do not like Jewel. And then, I kind of got around to a place where she was laughing and she was very irreverent. And she realized, again, she was in a safer space. Not to bag on Kevin and Bean, but they're kind of (laughs) douchebags. And I love them and I'm friends with them. Right. Uh, And they interviewed you. So you're not going to say anything mean about
0: them. No, and and they're (laughs) in book as as well. Well, I know.
1: Uh, But uh, it took a while to, you know, and and, uh, I... Almost made that mistake of assuming that this brand new artist on the scene was going to be a little bit, uh, you know, hard to deal with and stuck up. And it just turned out she was having a bad morning because of those those dumb radio jerks. The first time I (laughs) met her, she came in on my Sassy
0: show uh, when I was at K-Rock and she played a song. And it was just her and me in the studio. And I was thinking at the time, if I wasn't in a relationship, I would be asking her out. Yeah. Because I was getting a really cool vibe from her. It might have been, who knows, she might have been thinking, what a dork. You know, I just <laughs> I just smile at him. But we, had, we shared the same birthday. And when the uh, songs were playing, we were having a great conversation off the air. I was just... I was personally blown away by how nice she was and how uh, how sexy she was yeah. as well. I thought she was really, really pretty. I, I thought she was great. And what uh, a talent. I mean, she just picked up her acoustic guitar and played and sang, and there was no mixing, no echo. And I was like, wow. I mean, I can't even carry a tune in, in the shower. And she, here she is in that little podunk studio, and it was fantastic. Yeah.
1: I got that yeah. same vibe, too, Richard. Not to try and you know get... But she actually, at one point, once she finally warmed up, I said, can I get a second song? And she said, sure, you can. Tiger and that calling me tiger, I still to this day I bring that up to people that I was working with at the time and they rolled their eyes going, Oh, whatever. Larry. Does she hit on all the DJs? Is that the deal? I don't, I, <laughs> she wasn't hitting on, it. right? I did, I actually, I, it, whatever you know chance I had with Jewel right. I blew it when I asked her to uh, call my wife and uh, sing happy birthday to her oh, yeah. which she did graciously yeah. um w- what generated the idea for writing the book why was this a good time to put down all these stories what what started that cuz that's a that's a daunting prospect you figured you have a lot of anecdotes but what was it that flipped the switch there
0: Well, for about 10 years, people have been asking me to write a book because they like the stories I was telling. Mm -hmm. And then they would come up to me at a gig and they'd say, I heard you say this on the radio and I was getting out of the car. Could you finish what you were saying? (laughs) And then I would elaborate on it and they, you know, because then you're not limited to your 30 second break or whatever. And they would say, oh my gosh, you should really write a book. And so I was thinking I should write a book, you know, and i have been saying it to my wife for about 10 years and then everyone started dying. You know, Bowie started dying, mm-hmm. and, and George George Michael uh, died, and Prince died, and I was like, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I should, I've got some stories. I don't want people to think that Richard Blade emerged fully formed. I'm speaking to myself about myself in the third person there because I mean, the name Richard <laughs> yeah. Blade uh, emerged fully formed in 1982, and there was nothing before that uh, because a lot of the stories are really interesting and wild about the days in Europe and traveling around. Um, Oslo and uh, all through Scandinavia and Spain and, and the crazy clubs and the sex that was going on and everything like that. So I didn't want that to be lost. And so I really it came to the, the forefront of my brain. I've got to write a book. And when George died, when George Michael died, I wrote a big thing about my relationship with him on Facebook. And um, everyone was saying, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, we knew you were friends and didn't realize how much we were friends. And this one woman wrote, that was one of the nicest things I ever read. You should write a book. So I. I try and uh, message people back and I said, thank you. I, you know, I've I've often thought about that. Then she private messaged me and said, my husband's a publisher. Oh, wow! (laughs) Uh, could I introduce the two of you? And so um, I got to talk to this guy, Dan, who uh, runs Indigo River in Florida. And he said, do you have any samples of writing? And I actually did. I about two years before I'd written three chapters as just for myself to see if I could sit down and write chapters so i sent him the three chapters and uh, he said i'm sending you a contract so uh, i got a book deal and it was it was great because yeah. i didn't want to self-publish yeah. i've always believed um, maybe wrongly as it just coming from an old radio background if you have to pay to be on the radio if you have to pay to be on tv if you have to pay to put your book out then it's not really a radio show a book or a tv show you know yeah. um someone's got to at least believe in you a little bit and so, uh, you know, I made the deal with Indigo River and just sat down and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I got to a point. I remember getting up from my little office and walking into the kitchen and looking at my wife. And I said, this book is going to be huge. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I'm at page 200 and I've just arrived in America. And she was, wow. So, uh, I mean, it literally it's 500 and... Uh, fourteen pages. I think it might be wrong. Might be longer than that. But there's a lot of pictures in there. But it's a normal book is about hundred thousand words. This one's I think one hundred seventy six thousand.
1: Do you find that you have a remarkable memory for this stuff? Was it hard for you to kind of gl- go back and find details about these particular stories you were telling, or or do you retain a lot of that stuff? Well,
0: like you, Larry, being on the radio. You know, you tell stories and sure. you, you go back into your own past. So a lot of these things were fresh for me because I have been telling them. And people, yeah. as I mentioned, asked me at gigs about, did you date, you know, um, Dale Bozio from Missing Persons? I'm like, no, I didn't. I dated Terry Nunn from Berlin. <gasps> tell me about that. <laughs> and so you get into it. So it, it was still fresh in my brain. Right. And so those things were were there. And being a fanboy, I'd taken loads of photographs, so I went into my photo collection, and I put out all the photos in a kind of chronological line, Mm -hmm. all the press cuttings, so I got a timeline, and then I started calling people. And I called the people that I worked with in Europe when I was touring the clubs, because uh, back then... I wasn't as well-known, so there wasn't that much press. I had some press, uh, which was able to give me you know, exact dates and times. But I talked to the people that some of them had stayed in Europe. And I said, what was the name of that club in Horsens in Denmark? And what was the name of that uh, club in uh, Austria? And we put that all together. And then I started calling uh, John Taylor from Duran Duran about my Duran stories. And the guys from Spandau and um, Tina Hutchins, Michael Hutchins' sister, Uh, about my uh, friendship with Michael and going to Australia and spending time with them. And so it all kind of fleshed out and came together. And then uh, one of my closest friends is a guy called Peter Facer who produced Video One and Video Beat and MV3 with me. And so he came over to the house and I said, this is not, he's from England. I said, this is not just for tea and biscuits. This is work, Peter, all right? You know, we're not going to play around. So we sat for about four hours and we went through everything. And uh, I got masses of notes and timelines from his folders and then he was leaving and walking out to the car and, and as he was getting into the car I said thanks so much man I said you give me so much ammunition for the book this is great I've really got it all together he goes no problem oh and we didn't bring up that time you interviewed you uh, two live <laughs> I was like, get out of the car. I completely blacked it out of my mind because it was a nightmare what had happened. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I was. It was the early days of E! Entertainment Television when it was called Movie Time. Right. And it was their very first live broadcast uh, for Rattle and Hum, the premiere of the movie. And they had me do it. And they produced several packages that we had to throw to. They pre-produced video pieces. And I had a little uh, talk back in my ear and so the producers like okay you've got the band now but in 62 seconds you're going to package three uh, don't know why the producer had an English accent but he did. and so um, I would be, I was talking with Bono and trying to get him to lead into you know and what made you want to shoot this part of the movie in um, in Harlem and get together with these amazing gospel singers but he didn't want any of it he was So taken with the crowd that they closed Hollywood Boulevard down, and 10,000 people were there cheering. (laughs) that he just took the microphone out of my hand and he goes, I don't want to answer any of these questions. I want to be here for these people and I'm just standing there on live TV going, oh my God, have i just been dissed by the biggest band in the world and I'd forgotten about it. I would blacked it out in my brain and so Peter reminded me and it's there on YouTube in all its glory and so I put it in the book, you know, but it was one of those moments and I understand why. I mean, it wasn't Bono being a dick. It was a huge moment for him. Here's this huge Hollywood premiere for this little band from Ireland that's now conquered the world and i was that annoying fly in his ear, <laughs> bzz, bzz, when he wants to perform for the fans
1: it's interesting we don't you know it's hard to think about you two as a little fledgling band although there's some great footage now i mean that's the great thing about youtube you can find clips mm-hmm. like that you can find them on some little tiny local show in dublin yep. where they're debuting you know their their song and they They're so young and they're rough. They're not quite there yet, that sort of thing. Well, if you go back to 1983 when they played at the
0: Us Festival, Mm -hmm. if you look at the running order, they opened for missing persons. (laughs) Right, right. And I was on stage because Terry (laughs) was playing uh, Berlin and I was dating Terry at the time. And Bono climbed the speaker stack with a white flag to wave the white flag. He'd never done that before. And the bouncers went up and pulled him off the speakers because at the time he wasn't Bono and U2 weren't U2 but he kind of got that idea in his head that the crowd were going nuts as he was climbing the speaker stand and then that became a big part of U2's shows ever after but back at the Us Festival in 1983 the bouncers again with an English accent said get off that bloody stack of speakers get you out yourself and it was so funny I mean you do that to Bono now and you know the entire security team would be fired nobody's gonna do that right. to Bono now I know but it's amazing to see
1: how like you said how young they were
0: and you put hungry, hungry yeah. that was the great thing
1: that's interesting too is seeing somebody's stage presence because Bono is such a showman and he mm-hmm. really can command a stage and doesn't do it in a cliched way but he can make big grand gestures gestures that seem very powerful but you're right if you look back at that early stuff he's not sure what to do with himself he's trying to move to the music there are no none of those kind of grand gestures because they're a tiny little band on a tiny little stage That's so right. after
0: your listeners finish with this podcast they should go to vimeo or youtube and look up i will follow from you two. Yeah. And they were... honestly from the they us, were, From the us. No, no. Oh, just from, the, the regular oh, video. Oh, just the
1: original video. Of, of I
0: Will Follow. Yeah. They
1: were babies. Yeah. And you
0: will not believe how young they were. I mean, I look at that and go, oh my God, I was that age at that time. And then I look in the mirror and go,
1: oh, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> time is a cruel mistress. But it was,
1: uh, yeah, it was it's, amazing. It's Sting that pisses me off. I, it, Sting and Bruce. I look right. at those guys and go, they're good 10 years older than me, and that's what they look like? Fuck you, both. That's what I say. Uh, let's get a little of your... Actually, uh, uh, anything on that list of your five favorite movies from your childhood growing yes. up? Which one? There's actually two. All right. Give me, give me one. Okay.
0: One is one they've tried to remake Oof. over the last five years, but they can't do it because they can't find a way to do it without it being racist. <laughs> no, no, seriously. What is it? It's called Zulu.
1: Oh, yes. And
0: Zulu... Uh, oh, now for a Brit this was a big deal every year in england it wins the award for best war movie ever i mean it's amazing and it's the only film you will ever see that has the words in the titles and introducing michael Caine.
1: Oh, and wow. It, it
0: is the most amazing movie, and it's based on a true story. Yeah, give
1: us the historical background of 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 that.
0: Oh, you are going to be so sorry you asked okay. me. Can my you wife it in would two be sentences. rolling her <laughs> eyes right now, because <laughs> I am a student of the Zulu Wars. You
1: yes. know, I, I really... The dis- Americans don't know this. Yeah. They well,
0: really don't. Well, unfortunately, the uh, European culture... Um, suppressed so many native races, not just uh, Native Americans, but also uh, the Aborigine people in uh, Australia, um, the Incas and Aztecs in uh, Central America, and in Africa, all of the tribes, but the Zulu tribes in the late 1800s were formed together by one Zulu called Shaka. And Shaka Zulu built a a warrior tribe of 60,000 men. And there was an uneasy truce between South Africa, which was British, and the Shaka's, the Zulu tribes. And Shaka died, and chechuayo came to power, and he wasn't the tactician that uh, Shaka was. And a terrible thing happened. De Beers, the diamond company, found diamonds mm-hmm. in Zululand, mm-hmm. so they partnered with Queen Victoria and said, "We will give you half of the diamonds." but the British army has to drive the Zulus out of Zululand. So Victoria sent her armies down there and said uh, to the Zulu, we need to come in and take the land from you. And Chechuaia said, okay, we will go back. And they went back peacefully about 60 miles and allowed the uh, Dutch, De Beers, and the British to come in and take that part of the land, and they mined it, and then they found more diamonds deeper into Zululand. And they said, we're going in. We're going to cross the Buffalo River. And at that point, Chechuaia said, no, we have to fight you because this will have no land left. And so the Zulu War started. And the first major battle was at Isla Luanda, where the British sent in uh, a huge army equipped for the first time ever in the history of the planet with rocket launchers. And the uh, army camped at the foot of the mountains and they saw the Zulu tribe in the distance and they split the army and sent half the army after the Zulu. What they didn't realize is the Zulu had sent a division, uh, a diversion to deliberately split an army. You never do that in hostile territory. And so suddenly there was 1,500 Brits there against this mountain and 40,000 Zulu came at them Mm. and wiped out every single one. The worst military disaster in British history. And now the Zulus had nothing between them because the other half of the British army had gone north between them and South Africa. And so the Zulus went to South Africa and would have driven every Brit out. But in their way was a little medical station at a place called Rourke's Drift. And there was 108 people there. And of those 108, 82 were sick. And the others were engineers building a bridge over this little river, the Drift. And suddenly 23,000 Zulu come at them, 108 people. Jeez. And so there's two lieutenants there. One of them is the young Lieutenant Michael Kane, and the other one's an older lieutenant. And neither are combat trained, and they have to fight these Zulu. And they fought them for two and a half days. And finally, the rest of the Zulu caught up. And now it wasn't 20,000, now it was 60,000 <laughs> facing these guys. And watch the movie, yeah, because okay. it's, it's true. More Victoria Crosses, which is like the, uh, you know, the highest award that you can get, were given out at Rourke's Drift than at any other battle before or since, including World War Two. But it's an incredible, incredible movie. But the problem is, if you try and remake it, as exciting as it is, how do you do it without it being racist? Because of the white-black thing. Well, it's and
1: inherently it a, is. a racist story it, anyway. It uh, is. It's, um, it's the
0: white people wanting to take basically the land that the black people had lived on for literally hundreds of thousands of years. Now,
1: was this a movie you saw in theaters when it yeah, came out? was yeah. If my memory serves, it is a very long movie. It is a, very, it's a big spectacle. It is Absolutely. a big widescreen They even got film. Richard
0: Burton to narrate oh. the opening uh, words because it opens with the bodies of everyone killed at uh, Isla Luanda. And uh, it shows the Zulu taking the weapons off the uh, bodies, and he is reading this letter from the uh, war department saying, who are these savages that have no shoes and no weapons? That can defeat the British Army and give us the worst disaster. give us the worst disaster in the history of the British Empire. You know, and then,
1: So how did this have an impact on you? Was it just because viscerally it was such an incredible story or or was it part of it were you a history buff at all? I I was a history buff, but the, the big impact to me
0: was on two levels. It was the injustice to the Zulu people, and the other was the soldiers that were there. They didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. But all they, their only choice was to fight, to try and stay alive. And there's an incredible line in Zulu where this big sergeant major is trying to get the guys motivated to fight once again because they've been going nonstop. They haven't slept. The Zulus just keep coming and running into the British guns. And one of the weaker soldiers, uh, weaker in stature, that is, says to the sergeant, why are sarge why are sarge and he looks at them and he goes because we're here son because we're here oh, wow. and that to me i don't think i would have the courage the moral fortitude to stand and fight i I think i would be a, a blabbering mess in the corner and so that resonated with me the, the heroism of these guys who are fighting desperately for the wrong cause but they're fighting to stay alive because because they're there
1: yeah, so this is a big movie in the uh, 1964 is when this yep. came out, um, which is a very interesting time in Britain. Mm-hmm. So this is this is kind of big grand scale epic, while at the same time there's this big youth movement going on because music is changing. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's clearly something obvious to state but the Beatles were making a huge impact the the, the that sound was happening what's the, the name of the town that you uh grew up in torquay torquay it's, where it's, is that give us a sense of where that well is. if you look at the map of england go to the south
0: mm-hmm. and if you want to find it it's between exeter and plymouth the two big big Tans. Plymouth is where the Pilgrim Fathers sailed from. Mm-hmm. And then they went across the Atlantic and they bumped into a rock over here. So they called it <laughs> Plymouth Rock because the last place they s- stepped on in Britain right. was Plymouth. And so the rock became Plymouth Rock here in
1: the United States. Yeah, Which is, by the way, don't bother. Not that interesting. It's <laughs> really not. It is literally a small rock in That's the water. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It's not very fun. Um, what, what is life like in, Tor- uh, say it again? Torquay. Torquay. Laguna Beach. Really? Yes. Oh, so it's, it's a coastal the, town. Yeah, it's the it's a vacationers beach. town. If you ask any
0: English person about Torquay, they're going to give you one of two answers. I promise. I could put money on this. All right. So ask me. I'm 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 a, I'm a random English person. Mm-hmm. Ask me about Torquay. All
1: right. Uh, what can you? T- I'm going to. Can I do it all in right, a bad British bad Cockney? Uh, excuse me, sir. What can you tell me about Torquay? Oh, Torquay.
0: That's where Mum and Dad had their honeymoon. <laughs> Answer number one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, uh, what what uh, would you tell me about Torquay? Torquay. That's where John Cleese shot Faulty Towers.
1: Oh yes. Okay. Now I know. There you go. That's a very striking seaside village. There. It's a beautiful little village. I was so blessed to
0: grow up there, and in the book. It talks about the fact that I was born in Bristol, an industrial town, and it was about eight years after the end of World War Two, and it was still littered with bomb sites, and Bristol had never recovered, as England didn't, because we spent along with America, thank God, uh, so much of our money to rebuild Germany, which people say that's stupid, they started the war. No, it's not stupid. You have to rebuild them, otherwise they would start a third war, because that's why the Second World War started, because they didn't get reparations. Instead, they got fined, basically, yeah. trillions of dollars for starting World War I, but they had to build the country back up. So we helped build up uh, Germany, and in at the expense of building England back up, and so uh, Bristol was a very d- terrible, dark, industrial, dirty place. And my father put his foot down and said to Mum, "Our boys deserve better," mm-hmm. and took us a hundred miles south to this little seaside town. It changed my life. I became uh, a lover of the ocean and got to. i was going to meet, say the
1: transition know. to Southern California, not a, uh, other than the maybe the temperature and the and the language, uh, yeah. uh, not a huge leap for you necessarily. Exactly. You've been a beachy guy since you were a little kid. Surfing and
0: snorkeling, and scuba diving, made my own wetsuits, the whole thing. So <laughs> I wanted to come over where the weather was more cooperative. You yes. know? In England, we have a fantastic summer. People say, well, when is the summer? I say, June
1: 14th. That's the summer. <laughs> you can nail it down. <laughs> that's that. it. And one after could, that, it's gone. One good yeah, day. That's it. Um, uh, it's music around that time must have just been fascinating. I I love hearing because it's such a different perspective. I've had a chance to talk to uh, Jeff Lynn. I've heard uh, Elvis Costello talk a lot about, you know, the influences on these musicians that I love in England, their influence is very different than what I think Americans got to hear because, especially because of the controlled Uh, radio broadcast, because of the BBC, you were very limited in what you got to hear and when. So that they would, uh, Elvis Costello talks about, I mean, he, it always shocked me when he said one of his favorite singers of all time is Bing Crosby. And it took me a long time to connect the dots. It's Mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, that punky guy in the big glasses is is singing, you know, radio, radio. It's like, but then you hear Elvis sing a ballad, and you go, oh, he's a crooner. Yep, Allison comes out, and you go, oh, oh I see. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I recognize that between you know the pub sings and kind of these, uh, you know, family radio listens where there would be these traditional songbook kind of programs, and then that one hour at night sometimes where there would be some rock and roll, a little bit that they would get to hear. Um, the influences on you as a, as a child growing up, the wide range of music, you must have had the same sort of experience of all sorts of different types of music well absolutely uh, Initially, initially an s- appreciation for yeah
0: them. well initially the bbc hardly ever played anything popular even though the beatles obviously dominated the charts and mm-hmm. then the rolling stones and the who beach boys as well came over in a, a big way into britain and the monkeys couldn't hear it on the radio mm. and so what happened was pirate radio started uh-huh. and those were the ships in the north sea that would uh, send these massive am signals blasting across uh, england and my parents bought me a little transistor radio and a lot of this is in the book it was called halcyon and uh, this little tiny radio and, and me and my friends uh, we were a little gang but we were gang like the stranger things gang we weren't going around you know graffiti and stuff we were like riding on our bikes going hello and so we would go to kitson park and we would listen to radio caroline Coming blasting in off the North Sea and hear songs from Roy Wood and from, of course, the Beatles and uh, the Kinks. And we just loved it. And this was 64, 65. And then finally, the BBC caved in 67 and restructured everything. I mean can change the names of everything. Mm-hmm. Radio one came out and Radio One was the pop music station because they realized, you know, we screwed up, we need to change everything. And then Radio Two was the formerly the Light program. <laughs> that's where you would still hear Bing Crosby. And uh-huh. then Radio Three was uh talk and news and Radio Four was all classic. You know, so if you wanted to, you know, get your Mozart, that's where you would go. Wow. Four so, whole choices. Yeah, but it was it was amazing. It started at six in the morning and it would finish at uh about eleven at night, and then, of course, a few years later, it went twenty-four hours a day.
1: Was there something about that pirate radio situation that had a big impact on you? Did you? Oh yeah. Start, is that where you started thinking oh, about being uh, a part of something like yeah, that? Yeah, because that's a very romantic notion of being. It probably wasn't great for them because they're they're in a crappy boat off the coast of wherever, and who knows what kind of seas and you know the weather's not great. On no, the North, no, a huge. I North mean, sea. you get some of the biggest <laughs> biggest bad. swells in the world. I but mean, what that's to be a romantic feeling of we're out there they can't get us we can play anything we want we've got this rock and roll it's just it's sex and it's just great and we can oh that must have been uh, well, the DJs
0: came across that way as yeah. well and they became as famous as the acts. so it, Mick Jagger was on the same level as Tony Prince yeah. as one of the DJs you know uh-huh. Kid Jensen equally as famous as Paul McCartney And they were our gateway to this music. And we would listen. We would know that, you know, at seven o'clock at night, they would have pick of the pops from the States and we'd hear the latest music from America. And it was like, wow. And then they had an American DJ called Emperor Roscoe, who was just massive. And he was taken over to the BBC after they started with Radio One. And we just couldn't wait to hear you know, those DJs at night and it was fantastic. It was really one of those moments we, we all look forward to. we do our homework and we jump on our bikes and we go to Kitson Park and there was this big drainage pipe that they'd put there that was probably eight feet high that you'd use for mainline sewers, but they'd put it in there for you to play on and we would sit inside there as the rain was pouring down outside and listen on this little transistor radio and it would echo inside the pipe. <laughs> and it sounded so great you'd hear, you know, songs from the move and it was just brilliant it was like wow this is this is the life you know
1: so this is a story that all of us who have been in radio for any time this is that moment where yeah you and your friends are all completely wrapped up in this thing because it is rebellious and it's Mm -hmm. breaking the mold and it feels a little illicit in some way but there are those of us who go oh i think i want to to actually do that. Mm-hmm. I want to be that guy. How do you be that guy? You must have been thinking about that even as a as a child. Like, yeah. I, how I, do I get there? I, I
0: was thinking about that and it was really...
1: As opposed to being a musician. I mean, yeah. Th- 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 that that took precedence. Well, right? yeah. I,
0: I had no musical talent.
1: Did <laughs> you uh, recognize I, I, that? Oh, yeah. I absolutely or knew that. Or were you told that? No,
0: I, I told myself that. Oh, you yeah, knew it. Yeah. You were that
1: self-aware. Yeah. Oh, I,
0: good. My mom could play the piano, and we had an upright piano in, in the house, and I tried a few times, and it was just painful. See, I'm it, still
1: in denial. I still think I can sing pretty well. And mm. I'm... I'm Oh, I'm, just give me a break. Yeah. We'll no, go, no, I... We'll I, go I, karaoke I, one night. We'll see what no, happens. Oh, no, you'll beat me. I promise.
0: And it's not false modesty you know after a yeah. couple of seconds you'd be like you know you are right you can't sing but uh i could hear a song and i i knew what i liked and i knew kind of what my friends liked yeah. and uh then when i got to college that was my opportunity because there was a a college dj there who was in his third year and he was in the same dorm as me and uh i i, I kind of became his roadie and he became my um obi-wan kenobi and i followed what he was doing and I took over when he left as the college DJ. And that was, that was my big break.
1: There's always, uh, I've interviewed so many people. And when you get a chance to have this kind of conversation, there is that person or persons. But usually it's one person who champions you. Mm-hmm. And that makes all the difference between wanting to do something and getting to do it. Was it that guy? He was one of two, okay. definitely.
0: Uh, he introduced me as well to Northern Soul. And Northern Soul is uh, American black music that was being played in the north of England, so we called it Northern Soul, oh, and it was really fast, up tempo music. Like, why? Why was it only being played there? It was just uh, England, a smaller country as it is it is divided still, still north divided. and south yeah. you know
1: and then Scotland and Wales as well. So it's a matter of being a little more sophisticated in yeah. south of England because London's there and larger population and a little exactly. more sparsely rural populated. Yeah the so north. if you were up in like Manchester, Liverpool area
0: which is in the north you would be exposed to northern soul like mm-hmm. Curtis Mayfield and the Elgins and Dobie Gray and Al Wilson and stuff like that and I'd never heard any of this before. Mm-hmm. I had heard um, you know Roxy Music and Slade and sweet and loved all of that, Bowie, and loved all of that but suddenly this world of American black music came and it just exploded and it wasn't James Brown I mean James Brown crossed over uh, every every cultural divide in Britain, he was huge. So he was, you know, the the Prince or Michael Jackson of the sixties. So that wasn't considered Northern Soul. That was that was. He fun. was just
1: a huge that was star. Yeah, yeah, that was
0: what you wanted to dance to. But this was like a really fast up tempo beat, and it's the moment I heard it, I went, I could play this. I can get people dancing. Mm-hmm. And Norm had all this music, and I just just dove into it head first. And that was uh, a really big turnaround for me because I suddenly realized it doesn't have to be just the pop charts. You know, you can find some extra music and, and play it for the people as long as it is what they want to dance to. You know, because they're not there at a disco to be educated. They're there to, you know, drink and get laid and, and dance. Yeah. But if you can f- throw in those little nuggets and then at the end of the, that song, they come up to you in the DJ booth and go, what was that? then you go
1: yay you know, <laughs> got a winner there give us a little bit let's jump ahead richard and give us a little bit of what made the, the move to america happen and how what at what point did you say that's where i need to be
0: well i always wanted to do radio mm-hmm. i i thought you know larry morgan i've got to be like larry yeah, morgan that be was just like that, larry. that was that was my thought and the problem was in england the it was still very limited you've got the bbc And then you had about six commercial stations that had started. It was just the beginning of commercial radio. I mean, it's weird for Americans to even understand that when you've got 5,000 over here and had them since, you know, the late 40s, early 50s. But in England, they believed that if they gave the license to a radio station, it would... Uh, overpower ambulance transmissions and <laughs> oh, no. stuff.
1: I know it, it was just <laughs> they, stupid excuses. They didn't have the science down yet, no, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: But if we get these two
1: cans and we pull the string tight. Uh, <laughs> well, so it was more about just controlling. What, oh, absolutely. What, I mean, it was a, there was a little bit of a yeah. Big Brother situation going on. It's like we kind of like to have the toys to ourselves and not let it get out of hand. No, absolutely. And so I, I'd left college and I'd gone to
0: Europe and I was touring Europe as a club DJ and I, I did that for two and a half years and it was just. Absolutely incredible. And I had a shot on uh, radio in Austria, in Vienna. And I really enjoyed doing that. It's once a week on a Friday night, but I knew I was just a novelty because it's a German speaking country. And so I was just this English guy playing English and American music. And so I thought, I've got to go somewhere where they speak English. (laughs) And so it was Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. And I kept coming back to America and I kept coming back to Los Angeles because of the sunshine and the blue skies and California girls and growing up listening to the exotic places that the Beach Boys sang about, like Doheny and Redondo. (laughs) And so I thought, yeah, I'm going to go to go to california yeah, and not
1: many people sing it about torquay no uh, there was I know one it. the
0: ventures they have it. a song called torquay do. yeah
1: <laughs> but it's actually even
0: though i use it as a chapter because every one of the chapters in the book is named after a song title uh-huh. apart from one which is named after an album title because it was just too perfect and that's music for the masses from depeche ah, mode yes. but there is a chapter called torquay and it's by the ventures but uh, it actually isn't about Torquay in England. It's about Torquay in Australia because that it just so happens to be a surf capital. Oh. So it's like Torquay in Australia is like Malibu here. Oh. So, uh, but I used it. I kind of borrowed it anyway for Torquay. Is there's the chapter. But no, I, I wanted to come to America. So I. What prompted me I, is I was in uh, Bâle in Switzerland or Basel in Switzerland, right on the border of France and Germany, and working at a club called Happy Night and the dj before me because um, the, the club would provide you with a room for the month and you'd entertain the crowd for a month and then you'd move on to the next city the dj had written on the wall because there was nothing else on the wall it was the most boring room ever he wrote radio you can sing along with it but you can never be on it and every night i would get into bed and i would it was right by my head i was like God, this is the most negative thing. because <laughs> so I've been trying, as just about every DJ on the club circuit, to get onto radio. And I saw this, and on my last day, I wrote underneath, then one day you can sing along with me, Dick Shepard. And I signed it. And that was the day I signed a contract with myself. I thought, I've got to do this. I will not let myself down. And so um, in November of 76, I flew over to America. Wow.
1: Um, we've barely scratched the surface here, but that's probably why I should tell people to read the book. That's why you haven't even touched on the K-Rock years, which is where I started hearing you. I I am curious about, um, when you first, I, I have a memory of hearing you for the first time and going, oh, a British accent on American radio. To me, Mm -hmm. that was an unusual thing. I did not hear that very often, and I don't think I have since. It, it became uh, a little bit of a fad for a while. Oh, absolutely. It started yeah. you, I mean, I think it was you that kind of started this idea that American programmers going, oh, that makes us unique, let's go get a Brit. But it was very unusual to hear, did you get pushback right away? <sighs> oh. <laughs> that's it, a yes. It, yes. It w- <laughs> there's only... But in what way? I mean, were people offended somehow that they wouldn't didn't have an American talking well, to? Well, no, the audience
0: loved it, oh. because all the music... Oh, you mean, you, there's Stupid radio guys. Yeah, yeah. Oh. The, the audience loved it because, I mean, they wanted Soft Cell and Human League and Duran Duran and Depeche Mode. And then here's a guy who actually sounds like the music they're playing. And so, you know, K-Rock was in a, already in a position where it was getting ready to break, but it was missing one piece. And I was that piece. I wasn't K-Rock. I was just the piece that was missing, you know. And... Once I joined the station, it all fell into place. And it was was just Rick Carroll gave me that shot, which uh, everyone else... Is he the second guy? No, actually, he's... No, because he didn't... Rick didn't influence my style at all. Right. Because Rick wanted the DJs on the air to be themselves. And so every DJ... Sounded completely different None of us were like Hey it's 6.42 in the morning And here's the latest From the Human League You're gonna love it That was What was
1: so wild about Especially that period of K-Rock Because It 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 sounded like people walked in off the street, in and, a way. And that's
0: what it was. I mean,
1: you sounded professional. You maybe were the most professional-sounding guy on the stage. But you sounded, again, very different and yeah. very much yourself. But Swedish Eagle and, I mean, on and on and on over the years. Yeah, Jen and Dusty. And everyone Fish, yeah. Yeah,
0: you would tune in and you wouldn't have to wait to try and identify the DJ. You knew who it was yeah. immediately. And that's what Rick wanted. So I'm not dissing Rick saying he didn't influ- influence my style. I no, mean And he was one of the greatest radio programmers in hist- in the history of the medium, period. I mean, God bless Rick and Carroll. And
1: created, essentially, yeah. the persona that exists to this day oh, of yeah. what K-Rock is supposed to be, kind of this, Absolutely. this
0: trend-setting... There would be no K-Rock without Rick Carroll. Right. But he... Deliberately did not interfere with the DJ so Jed could come on the air and start talking nonsensical <laughs> words in the middle of a, a Regular sentence and it was brilliant. He'd be he'd be got like, this is oing-go-boing going And just another day and it made no sense at all and it was brilliant and you loved it. Yeah. and so uh, Rick was Rick was fantastic and I was so fortunate to be be there because I tried at so many radio stations and at one of the radio stations at KMET, the program director there, whose name I don't mention deliberately, <laughs> uh, when I, I gave her my resume and my tape, and I'd just been working with Michael Jackson and Barbara Streisand and Elton John, and I'd done all these parties for them, and I had these press cuttings and everything. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to get shot. I'll, I'll work, you know, I'll do a two-hour show if you want from 2 a.m. till 4 a.m. Uh, for nothing. You know, you just run an air check and you can listen to it the next day. And if you don't like it, you know, no harm, no foul. And no one's going to hear it that time in the morning and that. And she looked at me and she didn't even look at the press cutting. She just pushed it straight back in my face. And she goes, you will never work in this town with that accent. (sighs) And she smiled and just turned away. Yeah, Didn't even want. And I was I stood outside of Metro Media Square. And I looked up at the transmitter tower there. It said KMET on it, and I was like, "You, you can say and, it, and yeah, fuck you." And I didn't <laughs> say her name, and that just made me more determined. Yeah, it was uh, so. But I got that everywhere, not as bad as that, um, but 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 it was. It's, it's yeah.
1: it seems it's interesting because the the right fit was K Rock. I mean, you yep. wouldn't have really been. As impactful anywhere else. Well, because- the,
0: but the, the thing was, I went to a i i won a, a contest and got on to K West for one hour, and JJ <laughs> Jackson of MTV was yes. the the DJ. Yes. And he, God bless him, he was the nicest guy. I still miss him to this day. And when I see Mark Goodman or Alan Hunter, uh whose birthday was yesterday, Happy birthday, Alan. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about J.J., but he he really uh, was so nice to me in my one-hour prize on the air and, you know, gave me scoped tapes, edited tapes of just my voice, as well as an unscoped, which meant the whole one-hour show with the music. And I sent it out, and three days later got hired to do a hard rock station in Bakersfield. Ah. And there I was playing... Uh, Uh, along with American rockers, you know, Ted Nugent, etc. But I was playing a lot of English rock, like, you know, Zeppelin and Queen. And so uh, the audience liked it in Bakersfield. They liked the English accent. Here I am playing Aussie and sounding like Aussie to them. And uh, same with Priest and all those. So I worked there for a year to pay my dues. And then I went to San Luis Obispo to uh, Z93, the Music (laughs) FM. And uh, I got to be PD there as well as Morning Drive and... It, that was an incredible experience because uh, San Luis Obispo has got Cal Poly, and it's just full of the College, most beautiful yeah. girls in the world. There we go. And here I was morning drive on the only rock station on the Central oh,
1: Coast. Oh,
0: my. How did you ever leave? Oh, I, it was. The, well, the, you'll see a picture of the girl in, in the book, uh, and she was amazing looking. She was the perfect California girl that I was dating. I mean, you think California girl. That's right. Legs all the way up as far as they go and her blonde hair down to the small of her black back and we used her in ads <laughs> that i i photographed um of her in the z93 jacket and so she was just looked like she was naked she was in a bathing suit really and she's pulling it down you can see the legs and the heels and that and it was like z93 wear the jacket or nothing else <laughs> and we, we did our whole bumper sticker campaign on the central coast where we gave away a z winner a Z from z93 And they were hoping that we would come in number two. It was the very first Arbitron rating period. Uh, for um, the Central Coast. I think it was Market 178 at the mm-hmm. time, and which was a step down from Bakersfield, but it was the same owners, and they made me a, a great deal for me at the time, like $1,400 a month, Ooh. you know, and uh, the program director with all these hot chicks. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm not turning that down. And so uh, they wanted us, the only thing was, can you try and get us number two to Casely? Which was the the big country powerhouse on the AM right. at the time. So we went through the whole bumper sticker campaign, and uh, when the results came in, they caught, I remember them so well. Getting the phone call from uh, came from the headquarters in Bakersfield from Kern, and uh, it was Rogers Brandon. That was his name. It's uh, he's still out there doing the company, and I, I talked to him about the book when I was writing it, and he called and I said, "Did we get number two to case line?" He's like, "No, we didn't." you know but it was a good shot and i was like oh god so what did they get and he goes they got uh an eight rating and i go wow that's pretty good what do we get And he goes we got a 28 i said what <laughs> he goes we got a 28. 28 i want you to go on the air right now i don't know who's on the air go on the air right now and say z93 the central coast number one <laughs> music fm <laughs> and so uh i said that's great you know thank you so much been great working with you i'm going to um, you know, I'll be leaving next week, and he, he said, "But you're not going to stay on." I said, "No, I, I told you, I'm just going to take it to the ratings." And I gave you my when I was leaving, and so I left with those numbers, and then came here uh, to Los Angeles and got a gig at KAC, doing overnights, and then went from KAC to K Rock.
1: Excellent.
0: So it was, it was great.
1: Uh, if you want to hear the rest of Richard's history, you are going to have to read the book. Yeah, uh, a lot I of let, sex uh, in it. A lot uh, of sex. So lot of don't sex. let the kids see it. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the, is is there an eighties movie on that list? Is there an eighties movie? Uh, no. Okay. No. Is it true? Okay, here is an eighties movie question. Okay. Is it true that your name comes uh, according to your Wikipedia? The, uh, your Richard Blade names, which we discovered is not your real name, uh, comes from Blade Run. It does. All right. Yeah, I
0: was leaving KNAC and going to K Rock, and being kind of naive, I didn't want to take any of C's audience away from them. And they had a, such a small signal governed by the FCC, so they couldn't up the signal. You know, you go four miles inland from the coast, and you'd lose them. And I left them on really good terms. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to change my name, and I wanted to get away from Dick Shepherd. I wanted to go back to Richard, and I didn't want to be Richard Shepherd on a station that has Freddy Snakeskin and Jed the Fish <laughs> and the Freeze <laughs> Disease and Dusty Street. It was just such a boring name. So I thought, I'll stay Richard, but I'm going to lose the Shepherd And... I was literally playing Flock of Seagulls Telecommunication, my first song, at two minutes, 32 seconds, and getting ready to go on the air, and I didn't have a name. So I was looking frantically through the Los Angeles Times, and I see an ad opening in two weeks, Blade Runner. And I thought, perfect. Richard Runner. I'm going to be Richard Runner. It's going to be RR. I can steal the Rolls-Royce logo, and I've got alliteration there. Richard Runner. It's going to be fantastic, and I do like to run, so that was was perfect. And so... paper was really big at the time Los Angeles times. And so the song was finishing and I threw the paper down onto the the floor and I turned my rolly chair to the microphone. And I just thought, Oh my God, everyone in Southern California is going to be listening and I'm going to screw up and this is going to be awful. And I, turn it on the old rotary pots and then uh, i said uh, you know it's like a seagulls telecommunication that's a big song back east it's a huge hit in the clubs but it's going to happen over here it's from liverpool england and actually i'm from england my name is richard and i couldn't remember the runner and i looked <laughs> and the paper had folded and i couldn't see the second part of it all i could see was blade so like, i'm richard blade and this is the this is Rock, and i'll be back with some more right after this and that was it. Oh, man. So uh, I became Richard Blade because the paper fell wrong. <laughs> Did you like the movie? I loved the movie. <laughs> I, I just watched Blade Runner 2049. Uh, Blade Runner. Blade <laughs> Runner. Yeah, Blade oh, Runner. Blade Runner. That, that's my that, company. That that's, oh. that's my company
1: name. There you go. And
0: uh, I, I liked it, but it wasn't nowhere near as good as Blade Runner, yeah. which was so innovative.
1: What are the other movies on your list? Okay. I'll tell you why you're wrong. Okay. Below Zulu,
0: which was a uh, number one. Is a story of a Thracian slave who causes one of the biggest revolts against Rome. Again, it's a historical one. Oh, my God. Starred Kirk Douglas. Oh, uh, Spartacus? Spartacus. Oh, Loved wow. Loved, Look at you.
1: Boy, these epic movies. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Love Spartacus. Again, it's like, how do you face down Rome? You know, it's oh, a, that was, you know, me as a little kid watching that. And it's like, wow just fantastic oh i love this
1: boy these are really i would i don't know that i would have guessed this or the the big history buff thing what's uh what's uh, the fourth one yes
0: well you were talking about influences Mm -hmm. a little earlier about you know in england particularly the three biggest things in england in the early 60s were the beatles bond and jfk Mm -hmm. those were the three biggest things when kennedy died jfk was a big deal in england the biggest. Interesting. He was as big as Churchill was in World War Two yeah. in England oh. in the 60s. When Kennedy died, and then later when Robert Kennedy died, every woman on the, in the street was crying.
1: Wow. I don't know that it – I realize it had such a big impact he, on the UK. He was
0: the last
1: – both of them,
0: when I say that – the last best hope for Europe, we thought the missiles were going to come. Yeah. But he was the one, and then his brother, to stand up to the Russians mm-hmm. and to save us. And it, huge impact. So it's not about Kennedy. <laughs> and it's not about the Beatles. It's Bond. It's Thunderball. Oh,
1: and Thunderball. The, the
0: reason I picked Thunderball over Goldfinger from Rushwood Love and Dr. No is because of all the scuba diving and because of America and Miami. And my my wife and I, uh, she came with me to Miami recently uh, to do a thing with uh, Duran Duran on December 9th. We did a a live broadcast that I hosted with Duran Duran from Miami. And the next day I said to her, we have to go to the Fontainebleau because that's where where Goldfinger opened. And uh, we took photographs there. And as much as I love Goldfinger, I go with Thunderball just to take my headphones off and salute the scuba diving.
1: And that theme song was done by?
0: but Tom Jones oh. who famously held that last note forever and the I, ball yeah <laughs> ball. and when he was given the lyrics to sing he said what the hell is a thunderball and they didn't know but it, nobody knows nobody
1: knows but it, that's one of those overlooked ones i love that theme song i think yeah. that Tom Jones man that's that yeah. cat has it together. Oh, I
0: I, I read his autobiography when I was... Because I read a whole bunch when I was researching mine. Very disappointed about one thing in his autobiography. Yeah? His wife was still alive when he wrote it. Oh. And he claims that he had sex with nobody. And yet, every other biography... You know, people writing about him says he had sex with about 250 people uh, a year, including Raka Welsh and all these people, Mm -hmm. because he was such a heartthrob. But after reading his um, autobiography, I went onto YouTube and looked up some of his performances. Man, I can see why my mom loved him. He was
1: such a stud. Yeah, he was the guy. They were throwing panties at the stage. And this was back in the 60s where and and they were so they were big panties. Yeah. I don't know what means. Uh, Richard... uh, Do you want the last one? uh, Oh, there's one left. Okay, let's wrap it up. It's theme song has a whistle.
0: (whistles) Good, Bad, and the Ugly. That's it. Love that movie. Man! An American epic. One of the great movies. I mean, it, it starts with... You know, that spaghetti Western feel, but then it brings in the Civil War, and anything that brings in the Civil War to me, I am hooked. I'm a huge, huge history buff on the Civil War. You know, I'll go to any Civil War battlefield and walk through it. It's one of those turning points in world history, not just American history. So, Good, Bad, and the Ugly gets me every time.
1: Very interesting. So Now, if I didn't have enough respect for you before, you have respectable movie choices, so I can't fault you for that either. So even greater respect for you, Richard oh, Blake. Oh, Larry Morgan, thank you. <laughs> World in My Eyes is the book. It's available everywhere, literally everywhere right now. We didn't even get to the, like, lascivious Boom. stories. <laughs> yeah, but they're all in there. Oh, yeah, they are. More, more than Tom Jones. Yeah, well, I, I, as <laughs> just, my just, wife just, said when she read it, she goes,
0: you are a man whore. And I, but I, I had to be <laughs> honest about it, you know, and I, it's got the whole love affair with Terry Nunn and... And when I I made her read it before the book came out, she said, no, I trust you. I want you to write it without anything from me that stands in your way or is an obstacle. But after I wrote it, I, I said, you have to read it. because I won't. I, you know, I still love you so much, Terry, that I won't have it published without you reading it. And uh, she wrote back to me and, and she said. Oh, my God, that was so difficult to read. I had no idea you were fucking around on me so much. And She said, but every word's true. She said, put it out there. And you will not believe how the breakup between Terry and I went down. If you saw it in a Lifetime movie, you'd say, yeah, that was funny. But it was incredible. and It Uh. involves the FAA and 200 (laughs) people and a pink fairy in spandex.
1: Of course it does. Yeah. It was the '80s and
0: skywriting.
1: Yeah, uh, that's where you and I have something in common. I also had a love affair with Terry Nunn. Uh, she just wasn't involved. <laughs> she didn't know about it. Uh, but I was her neighbor, and that's oh. a story for a different time. Wow. I have a great Terry Nunn story. Oh, no Nowhere wait to hear. near as good oh. as yours. There was no fairy and uh, and no FAA involved. Just okay. uh, my roommate, a bachelor party, and a and a portrait of her with her. Uh, her tipped hair. Yeah, the, whole thing. the blonde and the black, yeah. Oh, Richard, we could talk forever, and it, for a while there, it thought, I thought during that Zulu part that it was going to be going for the full six hours. I told you not to roll your eyes. Your yeah, wife it, is my exactly wife. Yeah. right. I,
0: I could talk Zulu history forever.
1: <laughs> World in my eyes, Richard Blade. It is a pleasure. People, you got to check it out. If you want a picture of an era, a time, a place, and an era, uh, this book will give you that, especially if you love the music from that time. Great stuff. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Thank you, Larry, for